Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you this morning. Um, I have been sick for uh, basically two months, me and my family, and right now I feel like I could uh, run a marathon. I'm so excited to be here and uh, be preaching with you this morning. I was supposed to preach last week, and my whole family came down with the plague, and uh, we survived. So praise be to God. I could not be more excited to be here with you uh, this morning because we are in the Gospel of Mark, which if you've been here for any amount of time, you probably know that this is my favorite book of the whole Bible. I'm a total nerd for it. I love it. Um, And uh, this class we'll be doing in a few weeks. I could not be more excited about. I'm even making a Spotify playlist for the people who come to listen to that just feels very marky to me. Um, so we're going to watch some movie clips during the class. It's going to get super nerdy. So I just, I'm so thrilled, so very excited uh, to be in this, this gospel with you all. So as many of you know, uh, we observe the church calendar and uh, We are in the season where we study the gospel for that year, uh, which is called Epiphany. That's the season of Epiphany, uh, also known as Ordinary Time. And the thing that I love about the start of this season of Epiphany in this, this beginning of the year is that Mark's gospel is a gospel of epiphanies. Many smaller epiphanies, but also it was the very first gospel ever written. And if you think about that, that these stories were being handed to one another um, through storytelling. It hadn't been written down yet uh, for years and years after Jesus was resurrected. And finally, Mark took a pen and put it to paper and wrote those sacred words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And like something burst into flames in that moment. Um, His whole entire gospel is an epiphany. It is the words of the life of Jesus written down for us to come and study and talk about today and in the church all throughout the world today. Um, So if you think about it that way, what a great book to be in during the season of epiphany. But in particular, um, there are little epiphanies that we study in this season. And one of those really big epiphanies that happens in the gospel of Mark is the story that we're studying together today, which is Jesus's baptism. Uh, So we're going to read that together, and then I will pray, and then we're going to get into the rest of the sermon. Mark tells us, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, it is always such a gift to lay our eyes and ears upon your story, to hold it in our hands to read it over and over, to hear it in our hearts, to say it with our mouths. What a gift that is. Holy Spirit, we ask you to give us all the things that you have for us this morning. Would you give us what Jesus prayed for us, eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you give us hearts that are open? 
Would you help us see you, Lord, in a new and a fresh way? We praise you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So nothing about this gospel makes any sense, in my opinion, unless we first talk about some of his characteristics. I think Mark is quirky. And I think all gospel writers are. They are all their, their own selves. They are themselves in, in the way that they are. Um, Mark in particular is quirky to me, and so we're going to get into some of those things in a second. Um, but the Gospels as a whole are revelations of Jesus Christ through human beings, through eyewitnesses or friends of his. Therefore, we get some things in these Gospels that are similar and some things that are frankly, very different, Uh, different chronology, different stories told in different ways. We get different pictures into what Jesus was like. And one of the things that I, the thing that I love the most about this is that the God who became one of us doesn't just give us a perfect account from top to bottom of what happened in Jesus's life, uh, like a true story that uh, from beginning to end tells us exactly what happened. We get these four accounts that are actually quite different in a lot of ways uh, with the same true themes, but these, these eyewitness accounts that give us a different vision of who Jesus was. And of course God does this because he wants us, the same kind of people who have similarities and differences, to move through those things and to find God in the middle of it. So of course he would give us four stories, four different ways of knowing him and learning about his life and seeing him as the world saw him during that time. So rather than letting that kind of throw us off, like, well, this story is actually a lot different from the way that Matthew tells it or, how, you know, whoever. What we can do is we can enter the text as human beings as well and say, I'm a human. This person was a human. Uh, the spirit is between us and making all things good and perfect in this relationship. So I'm open to whatever that is this morning. That's how I open my Bible, especially in, into the Gospels. So we come this morning looking for these nuances in his teaching, in his life, in the way that Mark understood Jesus for who he was. So the important question for me, anytime I'm coming into a gospel, especially like the beginning of one, is what is this gospel writer's message? Who is Jesus to them? That's what we should be looking for. And I would just like to say from the outset, you know, if you're like note taker, write this in the beginning of your, your gospel of Mark. Mark is urgent, Mark's message is urgent. He is straight to the point. It is literally the shortest gospel. So he tells like the most amount of things in the shortest amount of time compared to the other gospel writers. Um, He also, well, I'll just say, my favorite comparison is between Mark and between Luke, the gospel writer, because they could not be more different. And so if we're talking about these quirky things, these nuances, I think those are the two that are the most helpful to compare. So for example, Mark uses the word immediately more than any other gospel combined actually. So um, that word immediately, for him, what happened when Jesus came to earth is like a domino, the domino fell, you know, and things are just like falling, falling, falling. And so when you read the gospel of Mark, you feel this like urgency and he's like, and then immediately Jesus went next door and healed this person. Then immediately he was sent out into the wilderness. So if you have your Bible and if you are a note taker, start circling immediately every time you see it. And once you look through your Bible, you're going to start seeing like, man, these are the dominoes falling in the gospel of Mark. So in comparison to that, though, 
is our brother, Luke, who uses the phrase, and it came to pass more than any other gospel writer combined. In our language is like, and then. It's like the slowest storyteller of all time. Just telling you like too many details. Um, and I don't really mean that. I think Luke is wonderful and is like a perfect storyteller. But that's what he is. He's a storyteller. Mark's not a storyteller. If you have a section of Mark that's long, that's like more than four verses, you better listen because Mark has something very important to say. Mark's straight to the point. I like to think about it this way. You know those coworkers that you have who like come to your office door and they're like, do you have five minutes? And then 45 minutes later, they're standing there and they're like talking like this. That's Mark. You know those coworkers you have who you have a meeting schedule with them and they like knock on your door and they have two coffees and like a savory pastry and a sweet pastry because they didn't know which one you'd want. And they're like ready for your two hour meeting that was supposed to be an hour. That's Luke. So those are your coworkers in the gospel um, that I'm presenting to you this morning. I'm the first one. Any of my coworkers can tell you. So maybe that's one of the reasons I like the gospel of Mark so much is because he's like so very urgent and to the point and has like really important things to say and he's not going to fuss about, right? So that's who we're coming to this morning when we read this story. And I think that'll help make sense of some of the verses that we just read and we're going to come back to them in a second. So it begs the question though, what's so urgent, right? What's so urgent that he has to say? And so I have two things that I want to offer to you this morning of why I think he's, he's talking so urgently uh, that we'll spend the rest of our time talking about today. So let's go back to the scripture, though, if you don't mind, on the slides. Back to the scripture we read this morning. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, that's Mark's uh, domino language. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. So we'll stop there for just a second. In all the other gospels, when Jesus is baptized, it says the heavens were opened. And you imagine like a book, like the heavens are opened like a book and you're invited into the story, which is a really lovely image. For Mark, though, he uses this word in Greek, schizo, uh, which is the same word we get schizophrenia from. It's this idea that something gets torn into many pieces. So if you can imagine, like if a, um, a bear or a lion were to like rip through something, the shreds that would kind of be there, you know, that's what Mark is saying to us about what happened to the heavens, they were torn open. And Mark is recalling a moment in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah is begging God to intervene, when it looks like God has maybe abandoned them and they don't know what to do next, the people of God. Isaiah says this, where is the one who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is the one who put within them his Holy Spirit? Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. For Mark, our urgent friend, opening was not a strong enough word, I would guess, because when you open something, it can be closed, right? When you tear open the heavens into shreds, it can't be closed back up again. Ripping open the heavens makes an irreversible change in the cosmos in the space between heaven and earth. My favorite Mark scholar, which yes, I do have, um, says this about this moment. 
through this gracious gash in the universe, he has poured forth his spirit into the earthly realm. So the heavens are ripped open and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice speaks, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. So the spirit comes and hovers over the waters and then God says, this is good, I love this. So what does that remind you of? Anyone? Genesis? Yeah, Genesis. This moment, Mark is most certainly recalling that moment in Genesis where the Spirit hovers over the waters and God calls it good. Because what's happening here is it is the new beginning of salvation history. And the amazing thing is that you get to be a part of it. And here's why I think that. This is the only gospel where only Jesus sees the heavens tear apart and hears God's voice. If you look in the other ones, it's like the whole crowd sees this happening, you know? Um, in Mark's gospel, it's Jesus sees the heavens torn open and Jesus hears the voice of God. And the cool thing about Mark, is, if you come to the class, we're gonna talk a lot more about this, but is lots of things are secret in his gospel. And what's amazing about this moment, about what it means to be a reader of Mark's gospel, is you are let into the secret from the very beginning. You get to be a part of what is going on in the mind of Jesus from the very beginning of the gospel. That's the gift we have as people who inhabit the spirit in us. So not only is this the beginning of salvation history, but you and I are invited into it. We get to hear the voice of the Father speak over Jesus, his love and his power and his anointing. So what's the urgency? What's the answer to that question in this moment that I'm trying to tell you? The urgency is that the Messiah has come. That's what he's telling us. And that ought to change everything. It ought to change the way we live every single minute of every single day. The Messiah has come to us. It ought to fill us with purpose. That we have a role to play in the story God is telling and that Mark's inviting us into that from the very beginning to hear all of this good news for ourselves. It ought to fill us with hope that there's nothing you can do to thwart what he is doing. I talk a lot up here about my favorite things about the Bible because really the whole thing is my favorite. It's my favorite thing. Um, I love the Bible so much, but I will say no scripture has given me more hope in the darkest of times than Philippians 1.6, where Paul tells us that he who started a good work in us will bring it to completion, that what God starts, God finishes. And so anytime I feel hopeless, or lost, I remember the fact that God is telling a long story and I get invited to, into it even in the very beginning of Jesus's uh, ministry in his life here and his baptism that I somehow get adopted into the story of Christ and he's telling a very long story. I'm a part of it and he's gonna finish it, amen? That's really good news. Ought to fill us with hope. And it also ought to fill us with strength the fact that the Messiah has come, this urgent thing, the Messiah has come. I have um, been struggling with anxiety since my second child was born, and I'm more of a depression kind of gal, so um, <laughs> anxiety is new for me, and it's awful. Um, it, ha I mean, truly has like just torn through my life and and at really turned everything upside down and I have had to learn a new way of being really and, um, and it's been really hard 
So I've been working with this counselor who I pay way too much money, but I would give her everything in my bank account because she's helping me live. Um, and one of the things that we talked about is in these moments of anxiety, she's like, what's a phrase you can say that, that fills you with hope? And I don't know that she's a Christian, so she may think that I'm a crazy person, but the phrase that immediately came to mind and that I say to myself when I'm in these moments is, you have the mind of Christ, which is a verse from 1 Corinthians. Because this, for me, reminds me that through the Spirit, I have access to the thoughts of Jesus Christ. That's what that scripture means. You have the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean Ginny has the mind of Christ. I now, have, I now can just be Jesus in his, in his mind and my mind all the time. We don't share a brain, right? But through the Spirit, I have access to the thoughts of Christ. So when I'm in these moments of utter weakness and anxiety and terror, I tell myself, you have the mind of Christ. And through the Spirit, I can like reach into the brain of the person who died for me and loves me and lives and I can pull whatever I need, the strength that I need from him. This is why it's urgent that the Messiah has come. What a difference that makes in a person's life to be alone and lost. And then all of a sudden, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to have access to the mind, the thoughts of the one who loves you most. That changes everything, friends. Anybody with me this morning? That changes everything. That's why Mark's message is so urgent for us today and all the time. So the second thing, let's reread the last part of this. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. There's your immediately. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Does that sound anything like the other stories of Jesus being in the wilderness that you know? It's a lot longer, right? The other stories. And nobody's just talking about the beasts. But Mark is, which I love. So right at the outset of this point, I'm just going to tell you the answer to the question, what is so urgent? The second point is that the battle has begun. What's so urgent? A battle has begun. The battle has begun the battle for your soul. Mark sets the scene here of a face-off that he will come back to over and over again throughout his gospel between Jesus and the powers of darkness, between Jesus and Satan, between Jesus and demons. Here, they're battling it out in the wilderness. This is like the beginning battle of a great war that's about to go on that ends with Jesus' death. And when he says, with the wild beasts and the angels, um, I remember sitting in my Mark class, which was really just me and this other student who are the only ones apparently at seminary interested in this gospel, sitting in my professor's office, and she was just gushing out all of her Mark knowledge, and I was writing as fast as I could. But I remember this moment when she said, uh, this moment with the wild beasts and the angels, those are the generals of the armies come to battle it out with their army leaders. Jesus has his angels, the enemy has his wild beasts, and like we don't get the details, but something went down out there. That's what Mark's telling us. This moment is particularly important in Mark's Gospels because the demonic plays such an integral role in the story of Jesus for him. 
and that makes us feel uncomfortable sometimes. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but let me show you why I think this is true. Each gospel writer has his first big moment in ministry that he writes about. Um, And this for us, this first big moment in ministry sets the tone, sets the stage for who Jesus is going to be, what his ministry is going to be about for the rest of the gospels. So in Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. That's his first big moment in ministry. And as you all know, if you're familiar with the gospel of Matthew, he goes throughout the rest of the book and kind of gives the Sermon on the Mount over and over again in different ways, right? Um, In John, it's when he turns water into wine. In Luke, it's when he gives the sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth where he says, I will come to to give sight to the blind and set the captives free, and that's who Jesus is in Luke's gospel, right? So in Mark's gospel, the first big moment in ministry he has when he goes into a synagogue and he's teaching, and a man with a demon stands up and says, I know who you are. You're the son of God. Um, as like accusing him, you know? And then Jesus immediately like puts his hand out and casts the demon out of this man. And for Mark, Jesus is like the demon slayer. That's who he is. That's like the starting story of who Jesus is and what his ministry is. So we as Christians, as readers of this gospel, can't deny that fact. We're gonna miss not only something that's very real and a part of our lives, but a real fact about who Jesus is what he came to do. And I don't want to miss any parts of him, you know? And I want to know this part of him too. So it may feel strange or foreign to you or like make-believe talking about demons, but this has to be our paradigm for the reality of the world that we live in. So Jesus goes into the wilderness to have this face-off with Satan, which is uh, in Hebrew is the word, the accuser. The wilderness is a place of redemption. If you think about the Israelites going into the wilderness for for 40 years and they, they, you know, come out the other side and and they are redeemed. Uh, But it's also known as a place where the enemy is at work, uh, where lots of hard and terrible things also happen in the wilderness. It's this sort of thin space between good and evil that that you can enter into. If you've ever fasted, like really fasted and and, uh, gone into like a a place of of intentional weakness, um, you know that the enemy is like on your toes when you do stuff like that. When you make really big choices for Jesus in your life, uh, for goodness, for for any, any kind of like spiritual large decision in your life, the enemy will always be close at hand to try to convince you that you've made the wrong choice. I heard this NPR story. Let me tell you a little bit about demons through an NPR story, okay? It was this story about cyber terrorists and the way that they were going about doing their terrorism. I don't know what the, like, verb is for that. Terrorizing. Um, The way they were going about it was... Um, they were doing what the government ended up calling frustrations. So they were hacking into these people's computers and they were doing silly little things like deleting emails or uh, undownloading programs or just moving things around on their computer because what that did was it distracted them from the actual terrorizing that was happening underneath where uh, big information was being stolen and things like that. these little frustrations made it seem like, oh, there's these, these I'm, my, my computer's glitching, you know, or there's something wrong with my email, when actually something very terrible was going on underneath. Frustrations. Um, my husband and I 
use this word a lot, have since, we've, since we heard this story on NPR, because that is so very much what it feels like to be an American Christian. I think in other parts of the world where there is way, way more of a belief in the spiritual realm, uh, the devil is way more uh, loud, you know, and, and in your face about things. But for us, American Christians who will deny anything all day long, the enemy comes to us in these small ways. Your car breaks down. You were supposed to get you know, some kind of groceries and you forgot the most essential things. And all of these, like four things happen in a row in one day and you're like, you, you just throw your hands up, forget it, and then you end up being horrible to your family. Rude, whatever. These little things, these frustrations are the way that the enemy gets to us more often than not. Sometimes we'll come home at the end of the day and me and Gabe, Gabe will sit down and he'll be like, frustrations! And it's like a sign for us, you know, like, okay, we're going to not let the evil get into our hearts right now. And we're going to like go get a pizza or whatever. But it's a way to know like things are happening around me that don't feel like they're just happenings. It feels like there's something darker behind them, even though they're small things. So that is, I think, a way that the enemy works in our life. I will also say like there are very big and real ways that the enemy can work in our life. And I think it's helpful to have examples. So I'll tell you a few of mine. The times when I'm making like the biggest spiritual decisions in my life, those are the times when I feel uh, the work of the enemy closest at hand in my life. So for example, my ordinations, I was ordained as a deacon first and then as a priest. Surrounding both of those events, really hard, big things happened. Um, one of them, for instance, not that hard, but almost thwarted the ordination. So if you think, I had a migraine when I was going to get my priest ordination. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Amy, but Amy and I got ordained at the same time. On my way to have lunch with you and TJ, <laughs> um, I had a migraine, and I, I thought I was going to have to drive myself to the ER rather than to lunch uh, right before the ordination. And I was like, well, this is it. I've drove all the way to Charleston. I've been waiting. For COVID moved this date back like eight months it's just never going to happen. I'm going to go to the ER instead of getting ordained. And I prayed and I prayed and I took Advil. <laughs> and I got ordained. But it was one of those moments that I knew, like, this is something the enemy doesn't want and he's going to be blatant about it. <laughs> like, he's going to be rude and in my face about it. Uh, there was also another time um, around that ordination time when our house got broken into three times in three months. And stuff was stolen from us. And um, that has never happened since, and it had never happened before that. Um, but it was one of those times where it, it just felt like I was being violated by something bigger than a human, you know? Um, and lastly, the thing I'll say is when we were baptizing my first child, um, the night she was going to be baptized, uh, she, and she's a great sleeper, she cried, screamed all night long. We ended up bringing her into our room, putting her in her pack and play, and she just stood in her pack and play and screamed at us, and Gabe and I just looked at each other like, I don't know, and we just went back to sleep, because we are also good sleepers. Um, <laughs> but so... She just screamed all night, and it was just very, very strange. And I, um, I baptized her, and Gabe was holding her, and I was pouring the water over her. And it was, it, Gabe said, who's, he's a very spiritual, oh, there's the picture, I forgot. Um, and she, she's smiling, uh, laughing. Gabe was holding her, and I was pouring the water over her, and, um, and he said, I felt her lift. Like, I felt something lift off of her when when she was baptized. So like something very real was happening in that moment. 
And um, it was bigger than us, you know? It was bigger than a weird night of sleep. Willie Jennings, who is a um, theologian, says, We did not know of our blindness and darkness and of our captivity to the demonic until the revealing of light and deliverance in Jesus of Nazareth. We can now see what we were incapable of overcoming until the overcomer appeared, telling us to fear neither the darkness nor Satan, because God has claimed the beloved creature. So I'll end with a story that I think wraps up these two ideas about Mark's urgency, the fact that the Messiah has come and that the battle has begun. Um, And it's about my in-laws, who when I wrote this sermon, I didn't know they would be here, but there they are, right over there which is very cool and a testament to the Lord. But I also put a pic- I have a picture of them so you can see them. How cute are they? Um, you can also look at them right there. Um, <laughs> I wanted to tell this story because they are, they're a gift to me in so very many ways, um, but maybe none other than their confidence in Christ and the power of God and the power of prayer. Um, they, uh, they are parents of seven children. And so most of... Um, I have a lot of stories about them because when you have seven kids, you have a lot of stories, you know. And this this is one of my favorites. And it's um, that when my husband was in high school, they were part of a church that had like a 24-7 prayer room, meaning prayer was literally happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year long, and it is still happening, like years and years of this. It's a really incredible thing. So constantly, someone is in there leading worship, and someone is in there praying, and often it's more than just those two things. It's many people in there praying uh, and singing. And uh, my husband's older brother became friends with this uh, teenager named Trung. And Trung was um, a ornery and like cynical teenager and was just kind of grumpy all the time, but he was friends with Joel and kind of, you know, when you become friends with a cyborg, you enter into their family in a way. And, um, and, and he was not a Christian and God, uh, Connie, my mother-in-law, God just put Trung on Connie's heart and it just wouldn't go away. And so my husband remembers her just praying and praying and praying and praying for Trung. And, um, this one specific memory in his mind where um, she's in the prayer room, sitting in the back of the room against the wall, kind of like swaying to the music, and she's holding up a notebook. And in big, bold letters on the notebook, it just says, Trung. And that sort of belief and commitment, those two things together, like how incredible is that? the belief that it will happen and the willingness to put in the time for prayer to will it to happen. To not give up when one or two prayers are said and nothing happens. That sort of endurance in faith is the exact kind of thing that Mark is telling us we are meant to have as Christians. What if we pursued our prayers like that? What if that was true of us as a church? What if we believed that we had power through the Holy Spirit to move things, to make decisions in the spiritual realm? What if we believe Jesus holds all the power to cosmos and creation in the palm of his hand and his power comes from his love and that he gives us access to that to make things happen in the world? Jesus wants us to know him like Mark did, as a conqueror as a victor, as one who is able to rescue us from the most dire of circumstances and from the depth of our sin. 
Because no matter how far we've gone, his love will go farther. And no matter what we've done, his love will do more. That's what his power is. That's what his power means for us. And we are invited into that power is what I'm telling you, friends. We are invited into that power through the Holy Spirit for ourselves, for the people around us, and for our world. And I really need it. And I bet you do too. That word, that truth. I need Jesus to be powerful. I need Jesus to be a conqueror and to know that the enemy has no power in his presence. It's not my prayers that will like stop moving trains. But I know every single time that I pray that I am praying to the one who can stop moving trains. And that sometimes he will use my prayers as a conduit for doing his work. That's what prayer is. That's how we pray with open hearts and open minds with God and for the things of God in this world. I can think of no better scripture uh, than Romans 8, 31 through 39 to express the truth of the power of God. Um, so I just want to read it over you because I think it's a powerful way to end this time. And if, you, if you're able, would you stand? I think it's a, a good uh, scripture to stand to before we move into communion. Paul says this. <clears throat> and if you need to like hoop and holler or like fall out in the spirit, you can. <laughs> if God is for us, Who is against us? He who did not withhold his very own son, but who gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the, from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What we do during the season of Epiphany to close out our services is something that we've really come to um, love and really believe has power, Um, and it is these vocational prayers. It's a way for us to acknowledge the different vocations that that we have within this community. We can't acknowledge all of them during the season, but we try to do as many as we can. Um, And the one for today is lawyers and judges. Um, Is the person who's supposed to read this here today? Jay Billsborough? No? Okay, I'll read it. Uh, If you are a lawyer or a judge or work in that field, uh, would you just raise your hand? Anyone? Okay, there's one right there. (laughs) Sorry. We love you. it, so we, it's true. It's true. Um, well, we do. And um, if you are, as we pray today, uh, hold this man in your heart. Um, and also, if you are near him, you can even lay a hand or put a hand near him. That would be really helpful. Um, but let's, let's pray for those in our midst who I know actually go here and just happen to not be here today who, are, um, who have these, these as their vocations. Dear Father and the giver of the law, 
We pray for those who are part of our judicial system. We pray for earthly judges and lawyers reminded that you are the giver of the original law and mindful of the role that judges have played in your redemption story from Moses onward. We are reminded that the law exists to show us our sin and our need for a savior. None are righteous, but through the blood of Christ, we are redeemed. God, we acknowledge that those who are given the task of applying the law will be tainted by their own fallenness and sin. So we pray that you will give them wisdom. We pray that you would view every party who comes before them as created in your image and that you would give them discernment for the decisions they make that impact these lives. We pray that they would treat all parties with the respect that is due to the children of God. God, let those who are a part of the justice system behave justly in all they do. Love mercy in the way that you love mercy and walk humbly with you as they go about their daily roles. Let their demeanor point others to you. Let them be instruments of your peace and justice. As long as there is sin, we know that we need earthly judges, but we eagerly await a time when judging between parties will no longer be required upon your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, God bless you all. Thank you so much for being with us on this very special weekend, MLK weekend. Um, Pray that you, if you have the day off tomorrow, you have a wonderful day off. And if you don't, I'm so sorry. God bless you. See you next week.